On Twitter, it's at Jonathan Healy, and we will go through the main papers to begin with, with our panel this morning, Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at NUI Galway, and token American for the purposes of this particular uh, discussion that follows in a moment, Elise Hand, columnist with the Irish edition of The Times, and former journalist and now director of public affairs and communications at Trinity College Dublin, Thomas Malloy. Good morning to you all. Good morning. We are in the bunker, because we are at war. (laughs) We are. I think... Well, certainly watching any journalist watching the press conference, extraordinary first uh, White House press conference, I think probably felt a little bit like that that shot of um, Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz when she's cradling her dog and going, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore, Toto. I didn't even have a dog to cradle. We are are definitely, we are in strange places. We will play that press conference in a little little while because if you didn't hear it, it is, I won't say a wonder to listen to, but it is certainly uh, alarming to listen to how the White House press secretary uh, handled last night. We'll go through the front pages, first of all, in our flak jackets and our hard hats, uh, because we are at war. Trump, the world's protests, is the headline on the Sunday Independent, and it is a photograph from Washington in front of the Capitol building um, of the Women's March uh, on the National Mall. Lots of women, lots of pink hats. Uh, Government Minister Leo Varadkar has voiced his deep concern after Donald Trump unveiled an isolationist vision of America in a divisive and fiery inauguration. Mr Varadkar branded the US President's America First Manifesto as nationalist and said it seemed to be intended to govern as he had campaigned for the presidency. Uh, a speech described as worrisome by Leo Varadkar, which um, I suppose is one way of looking at it. Uh, they go with the exclusive on their side column there. State agency uh, that prote- promotes road safety has warned that Transport Minister Shane Ross about serious risks to its plan to reduce road deaths to 124 by the year 2020. Lots of stories in the Sunday and the last couple of weeks about the RSA. Uh, the Sunday Times, millions of protesters march against Trump. That is the same story about the demonstrations, not just in Washington, but in pretty much every American city, here in Dublin, London, elsewhere around the world. More than half a million women and other protesters marched through Washington in opposition to Trump yesterday. Um, So they didn't call him President Trump, they just called him Trump. Um, Subway bosses said the metro system was busier than it was on Inauguration Day. Uh, John Mooney has a story. Guy, the misuse of public money exposed in audit. An audit of the Guy, the college in Templemore has uncovered serious financial irregularities, including Guy, the spending public money on entertainment, gifts and presentations to colleagues and transferring hundreds of thousands of euros to clubs and societies. I do have to reference a little story down here. Senators pray for reflection room. God love the senators. Not only do they have to go through the trauma of nearly being abolished uh, during the last term, um, a group of independent senators has proposed incorporating a new space in Leinster House for quiet reflection and prayer after Kildare Street is refurbished. The the Shannon's Committee on Procedures and Privilege made the formal proposal to the Oireachtas to develop the quiet space late last year. I would argue, sorry Jonathan, that they actually have a quiet space and it's actually called, it's called, the, the, chamber. It's called the chamber. <laughs> you can always head to the jacks and just lock the cubicle, lads. That's as quiet a space as you're going to find. And the Sunday Business Post uh, has a very interesting front page. Brexit backlash. Business failures up 13%. Deal-making down 26%. This would traumatise Donald Trump. Uh, Former ministers, diplomats and top economists are both worried and frustrated at Ireland's response. A growing chorus of influential former cabinet ministers and policymakers are challenging the Irish government's Brexit strategy. A startling new figure show a surge in business failures and a decline in corporate deal-making since Britain's referendum to leave the EU. We'll come back to Brexit in a while. Uh, They have that story that I referenced earlier. Bus Aaron has 250 
idle drivers in nationwide depots. Trouble transport giant Bus Aaron maintains a constant pool of 250 idle drivers in its depots and garages, this newspaper has learned. It's quite work if we can get it. The 250 drivers out of a total driver pool of 1,359 are kept in reserve in garages around the country as part of their normal roster hours to cover annual sick leave, uh, annual leave and auxiliary demand. It's an awful lot of people. There's obviously three or four people sitting outside this studio now should I decide to give up at any point that they can come in and fill in at short notice and good luck to them for getting paid what they're getting paid probably more than me. <laughs> and the Irish Mail on Sunday envoys 20... Yes, the world is in a state of crisis. We have Donald Trump in the White House. We have Brexit going on but the Mail on Sunday tells us about a 25 grand bill uh, that the Department of Foreign Affairs spent when moving artwork uh, belonging or at least related to the Irish ambassador to Austria because he moved five miles away and it cost uh, 25 grand to move the art which is a bit unusual and they go to the front page first lady, da- first lady dazzles as women's world's women roar but they put the picture of the first lady dazzling as opposed to the women who were roaring which is again I suppose they can you can have your own opinion on that um, we have to talk about Trump and Larry Donnelly I'll, I'll come to you first of all as, as the American on the panel Thoughts on the first two days of Trump's presidency? Well, I, I suppose uh, I have a certain take on all of this, uh, which um, hasn't really made me popular, I suppose, on social media and, uh, and other fora. Um, like a lot of people, uh, I don't have much time for President Trump. I despair that he was elected president of the United States. But at the same time, uh, I, I wonder about some of the reaction to it. For instance, I think from a political point of view, much of the reaction of the Democratic Party has been hysterical. Uh, it has been counterproductive, uh, and I think it has been wrong-footed. Uh, what the Democratic Party should have done, the party I belong to, should have done in the wake of Trump's victory, which again, the Democratic Party would have been in very bad shape even if Trump had won- if Trump had lost the election. It's the Republicans dominate state legislatures; they they dominate governorships; um, they have control of both houses of the of Congress. Um, yet what they've done is they've reacted in this way. Let's subvert the Electoral College. Let's rail about these scandals, which we don't know if they're true or not, rather than engaging on a policy point of view and looking as to why uh, so many people in middle America who um, would be regarded as traditional Democrats abandoned the party for Donald Trump. And I also wonder, and you said the past two days, look, I understand the anger that fueled so many women uh, to go out and march all around the world, but let's look at reality here and political reality. The political reality is that 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. So in light of all that, and I, again, I understand the anger, etc., but I think now is the time, Trump is the president. Now is the time for constructive opposition on the issues uh, and getting to grips with the reality. We can throw our hands up in the air and lament all of this, but the reality is Donald Trump is president. We need to get to grips with yes, it. Yes, we need to get to grips with it, but how do you combat something like this. Now, I, I don't go out on a Saturday night anymore. I no longer have a social life at the weekends because of this programme. And normally I would sit down and, and watch Netflix or something that would distract me. I couldn't turn off the news channels last night because of what was playing out. And for those of you who were out last night and who didn't actually listen to this and didn't have the misfortune of listening to it live like I had, let's listen to the new White House Press Secretary, Sean Spicer, at his first press conference, his first opportunity to stand in front of the White House media last night. But first, what Donald Trump said to an audience at the CIA who were dragged in on a Saturday to listen to I was explaining about the numbers. We did a we did a thing yesterday. The speech. Did everybody like the speech? You had a laugh. So I've been given good news. But 
But we had a massive field of people. You saw that. Packed. I get up this morning, I turn on one of the networks, and they show an empty field. I said, wait a minute. I made a speech. I looked out. The field was, it looked like a million, a million and a half people. They showed a field where there were practically nobody standing there. And they said, Donald Trump did not draw well. I said, it was almost raining. The rain should have scared him away, but God looked down and he said, we're not going to let it rain on your speech. Before I get to the news of the day, I think I'd like to discuss a little bit of the coverage of the past 24 hours. Yesterday, at a time when our nation and the world was watching the peaceful transition of power, and as the president said, the transition in the balance of power from Washington to the citizens of the United States, member, some members of the media were engaged in deliberately false reporting. Photographs of the inaugural proceedings were intentionally framed in a way in one particular tweet, to minimize the enormous support that had gathered on the National Mall. This was the first time in our nation's history that floor coverings have been used to protect the grass in the mall. That had the effect of highlighting any areas where people were not standing, while in years past, the grass eliminated this visual. This was also the first time that fencing and magnetometers went as far back on the wall, preventing hundreds of thousands of people from being able to access the mall as quickly as they had in inaugurations past. Inaccurate numbers involving crowd size were also tweeted. No one had numbers because the National Park Service, which controls the National Mall, does not put any out. By the way, this applies to any attempts to try to count the number of protesters today in the same fashion. We do know a few things, so let's go through the facts. We know that from the platform where the president was sworn in to 4th Street holds about 250,000 people. From 4th Street to the media tent is about another 220,000. And from the media tent to the Washington Monument, another, another 250,000 people. All of this space was full when the president took the oath of office. We know that 420,000 people used the D.C. Metro public transit yesterday which actually compares to 317,000 that used it for President Obama's last inaugural. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. And he said it with conviction, and, and anyone who works in the media knows if you say things with enough conviction, people might believe you. But, Tom, realistic, he's talking out of his backside, because we have the proof that they did not have as many people there as they had for the Obama inauguration certainly not as many people as turned out yesterday they used those white things that he said weren't used before for Obama as well there were so many holes in what he said as official White House spokesperson you, you could drain spaghetti through it it, it was a really alarming kind of presentation. Having said that I mean what, we, we should put one caveat which is whenever there's a large march in D.C. There's always a debate afterwards about how many people turned up. Oh, they have this, here this as well, I can assure you. <laughs> to Vietnam, to the Million Man March in the 90s. And, and you know, both sides kind of argue. But, but, but this was an extraordinary display. And, and anyone who, who's really interested in this should, should actually watch it on TV because Spicer, who I think will be a big part of all our TV watching lives and radio listening lives in future, you know, he, he looked so incredibly uncomfortable mm. when he said this. Um, he didn't believe what he was saying. It was It was... Like the beginning, you were at the birth of a new kind of communications where people were obviously being frog-marched in by their boss. You know, you felt that uh, Trump was probably glaring at the TV but, as he was spoke. Was it like that. HMV, his master's voice, that was being dictated through a gramophone coming out through Sean Spicer? Yes, it was. It was. It was. Um, and, and I think we, we're all going to have to uh, rethink how we 
how we deal with information from the Trump regime. I think we're going to have to find a way of there's so much noise or stripping out the noise and, and looking at, at actions. You know, that's what's important here. Lee's your thoughts on that last night, because, again, he didn't take questions, which is the job of the White House press secretary is to take questions from the media as part of the open, transparent process that should exist. He turned and as he he did. No, it was an extraordinary thing. I mean, I was sort of calling him um, comical Shawnee, which is I suppose, <laughs> a reference alley. to the comical alley of the Iraq war days uh, when he went, went out and spout um, complete and utter untruths on behalf of his, his leader. Um, it was it was worrying on many levels. It was worrying on one level because what Sean Spicer was doing was sort of perpetuating this this narrative of the Trump administration. He was speaking not to the journalists but to the base who were listening in going there's the crooked media again, there's the lying media again. So again it was just it was a stream of propaganda appealing to the base who were distrustful of the media to start with which is not the job of, of, the, of the White House spokesperson. And I think the media were sitting there suddenly for again many times throughout the last since since uh, the Nove- beginning of November have realized the enormity of the task they have on their on their hands because I suppose in a funny way this could actually and this might sound odd but it could actually sort of her- herald in a new age for the long I suppose overlooked news reporter because they're going to have to find a way to take every fact that comes out of the White House uh, press spokesperson's mouth and quickly be able to refute fact it. Check it. But absolutely fact check it with, with if possible visuals or statistics from reliable sources to back it up. So again I think news reporting is going to become incredibly important because a lot of media I think has been dominated and not just in America but everywhere by you know well, the well, opinion well, writers and so on. Yeah but you've got Trump saying I'm at war with the media. Like he declared war on his second day in yeah. office with the media and if yeah, they have to declare war back. I mean, they have to understand yeah, but that but this... They, can they unite, though? Because well, we saw what happened to, to Jim Acosta. Look, you know, I mean, I am the veteran, and as is Thomas, actually, um, of many doorsteps over the years with our own ministers and, and Taoiseach over the years. And, you know, we have, as the Irish media, we do tend to have a lot of access to our leaders. But we have long learned... We don't always abide by it, but if there's a fraud issue we need to get an answer on, instead of us all shouting questions and going, you know, Taoiseach, this, and I, can I ask my question, can I ask my question... If somebody asks a question, they get an evasive answer or a non-answer. The next journalist from another publication goes in and with a follow-up question on the same subject. Mm. And I think the American press corps are going to have to sit down and and, and actually put knock heads together and say we have to get a new way of behave of of you know of not being in competition with each other at you know informal press conference situations. We can still compete on many other levels. There's many many ways to break stories through freedom of information, through using sources, all the traditional ways. But when it comes to actually getting the either the you know Sean Spicer or Donald Trump himself in a room, there's going to have to be new yes, rules of engagement. Pu- they'll punish with access, and 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 that's how they will do this, uh, Larry. Yeah, I mean it, it was it was awful to watch. It was truly dreadful. Uh, I think that the you know as said, uh, Spicer clearly was kind of the the puppet here, and I think it demonstrates why for some why so many of us argued that Trump was temperamentally unfit to be president of the United States. Were I advising him, and this is the thing, this could have so easily been avoided, and again, this battle with the media is not in Trump's interest. Were I advising him, I would have said, well, look, you know, we had a pretty good crowd given that Washington, D.C. is in a place where many people, very many people like four, us. Four percent voted for Trump in D.C., four and, percent. And, and I, I would have said, well, maybe we'll have an event uh, in West Virginia and we'll see what kind of crowd we get there. And I also, if I was advising Trump, I would have said, well... 
our people have to work. It's Friday. They can't just come uh, drop everything and come see us. That way would have easily, and again, that would have played to the base as well. This war with the media is counterproductive and won't help him. If, however, and this is the thing that maybe if we come to, um, this is the one thing that, that needs to be said, and I know it's so disturbing to people here or elsewhere around the world. Trump when he says in his speech, and again, we can talk about the speech uh, all we like, uh, the speech where people here ripped it apart, the speech actively, actually was a very effective political speech. Why so? Because of the central message and the central message that fueled Donald Trump's victory and the ascendant philosophy in the United States, and that is America first. When Donald Trump says, everything I do is going to be to put America first, when he says, I'm going to hire American by American. This is what the American people, this is where they're at. They're more pessimistic about the future and more isolationist than they have been in recent memory. If Trump keeps on that message, and that message means, you know, getting out of trade deals that don't benefit it, staying out of messy military entanglements that have had horrible consequences, and looking at the issues that people in everyday people across the United States are facing. If he's on that, then he actually has a message. But are you, might not, be, are you not dismissing all of the women who marched yesterday and all of those protests right across the country who were diametrically Jonathan, opposed Jonathan, to Donald Trump? Not one of the people at, that, uh, at those protests voted for, Do- voted for Donald Trump. And again, 53% of white women voted for Trump. Now, you know, these are the realities that keep getting glossed over. I don't like them any more than you do, but we have to engage with them. We have have to deal with them. And what, what I fear is that if there isn't constructive engagement, in particular from the Democratic Party, for whom some of these issues like trade, infrastructure, some of what Trump's saying should be what Democrats are saying, if they don't engage constructively and Trump keeps this America first mantra to himself, he could actually build a base of support that I think would surprise a lot of people because some of that America first message might actually even appeal to some of the people who were marching yesterday. Well, but there's always that. But does this send out Thomas Malloy a message to other politicians? around the world that all you have to do is roll it back to the most basic message imaginable uh, and it helps you get elected. And I just read with interest a story in the Sunday Times and of course Donald Trump and Sinn Féin couldn't be further apart politically but uh, this suggestion from a new study by Irish academics Sinn Féin's electoral surge was due to a distrust of the political elite not dissimilar to the distrust in the US I would argue. I think simple messages are, are key to successful politicians of all all hues, you know, and, and that that is one of the things about Trump, you know, as opposed to Spicer, say, Trump is a very gifted communicator, I agree. I think you can't listen to a speech without knowing what he wants. He may he's not a he's he's obviously not a um a communicator who who's got great rhetorical flourish. Uh he's not particularly pleasant to listen to, but you, you always come away from a speech with one or two ideas. You know, what he wants. I, I think, you know, we, we have to be realistic. Trump has a very ambitious, a very elaborate uh, campaign uh, or, you know, set agenda. Uh, quite a lot of it is probably makes sense. If I were American, I would certainly think that bringing down business tax is a good idea, for example. After all, it's worked very well for this country. It's absurd that uh, America has the highest business tax pretty much in the Western world. Yeah, but, that's, but there's a difference between reducing your tax rates and, and becoming isolationist and but, protectionist. I mean, that is a key point of you know, his economic policy. And we all understand that we can talk about it. Can any of us say what the key point of uh, Hillary Clinton's economic policy mm. was? That's, that's yeah. the point. And I, of course, I think that, that Trump hasn't uh, simplify to some kind of ludicrous degree. He, he, he's you know, over time. And of course, what we have seen here, we only pick out the bits that we're interested in. Another thing that is interesting about Trump is I think that one of the reasons why he resonated is that he had a very strong anti-war message. 
and and Hillary Clinton didn't. And that really resonated with vast parts of America because many, many Americans have been affected by war. Surely he must be, you know, I agree, I actually agree with with, uh, both Larry and Thomas on many points, but I think the danger, I suppose, the gamble that Donald Trump is taking is that making these promises um, to bring back jobs, to make America great again, to revitalise the Rust Belt with similar jobs that went. Um, he His base now expect a lot from him. And as quickly as they flock to him, they could turn against him. But all he has to do is say, well, I created a thousand jobs in backwards Alabama. Look at what I'm doing. I'm bringing the jobs back. He may not have created a thousand jobs. All he has to do is bloody well say it now and it'll be reported and taken as fact. Well, you see, this again goes back to the point about how his his administration is going to be reported upon because um, every statement he makes, because, you know, he's one of those, he's one of those guys that... See, he doesn't so much tell lies as he tells what he thinks is the truth, you know, and he believes it himself. He's, so a, when he's, he says, a, he's a dangerous idiot, is that what you're saying? Well, when he says, you know, there are a million, a million and a half people there, he says it with such conviction, you are fairly sure he believes it, that, you know, this isn't him going, OK, well, I can see why that picture there isn't, but I'm going to say it anyway. He's saying this with such conviction that he believes it. But what's, the di- what's different here? If Enda Kenny came out and said something like that, we would laugh him out of it. Yet, Trump can... Larry, I mean, you, I, I how, can, would you, I, how would you explain I've, it? I've, I've said, I, I, I mean, I keep saying I probably sound like a broken record. Um, people aren't taking into account just how pessimistic Americans are. More than 80% of Americans think the American dream is dead and that the country's be- best days are behind it. This makes the situation, the conditions are ripe for Donald Trump to come along. And when you talk about, and Lee has a really good point there about the expectations of his supporters, and it comes to that now seminal quote about uh, taking, his, taking his things literally versus taking them uh, seriously. And I think a lot of Trump's supporters are smart enough to know that not all these manufacturing jobs are going to come back. Mm-hmm. But what I do think they think is that unlike others, he's actually going to fight for that. He mightn't succeed, but he's going to try for them. Well, I'm going to try and let my blood pressure go down because it has been rising through the course of this conversation. We will come back to it later on and go to Washington. And Shona Murray has been speaking to a lot of the people on that march yesterday. We'll hear what they have been saying, but the blood pressure won't be down for long because we have to talk about Brexit next. <laughs> uh, we're going through the Sunday newspapers, uh, which are, I'm not going to lie to you, they're pretty grim, but uh, we, we'll get to some of the lighter stuff later on. Larry Donnelly, Lee's Hand and uh, Thomas Malloy are with me. Two tweets just before we move on to Brexit. Um, at least Jonathan Healy has an intelligent panel discussing why Trump is president and how his message resonates. So, so that's good. We, we, we'll take the compliment. But Leslie, good morning, Leslie. Can News Talk bring in some female American pundits, please? Your man completely missed the point of why we marched yesterday. I'm presuming you're your man there. Well, I, I don't. I, I absolutely get why they march because of the things that Trump has said and done, which are disgusting. And I absolutely understand why they did. But all I'm saying is I'm just not sure from a political point of view whether it's going to move things their way. Well, we will see whether uh, Jeannie London, who, of course, is a female American pundit, agrees or disagrees uh, with you, Larry, later on. Brexit and, and the front of the business post, Thomas, um, putting on your, your former hat as a, as, as a finance journalist. Brexit backlash. This is happening, and, and, and there's no point denying it. Anybody who is involved in exporting to the UK is being crucified. Their margins have been completely whittled away over the course of the last five months. 
And we would be foolish to think that this isn't having a, a, a deeper effect. And it is because the Business Post, through uh, the work of the journalists there, Ian Guider and Barry White and Jack Horgan Jones and Tom Lyons, is reporting business failures up 13%, deal making down 26%. A raft of people now saying that we aren't doing this right. And Enda Kenny saying, don't worry, lads, I'm in charge. Yeah, it's a very good front page. It's kind of uh, actually what the Americans call a conceptual scoop. You know, there's no real new information there, but they pulled a lot of different things together to make a what is it kind of a, like a cry from the heart for a, a, a more thought-out Brexit policy. You've got to have some sympathy with the government. This is a, a moving target, but I think that, that what the Sunday Business Post is trying to say, and actually, there's a very good. Um, very good section inside the business section of the Sunday Independent as well, is we've got to get serious and we've got to talk about national interest. And I think we don't quite know what our national interests are with Brexit yet because we haven't consulted with all the different parts of society to really to hammer that out. It's very hard to think about your interests. And as a country, we're not necessarily uh, used to talking about national interest. We, we talk a lot about collaboration and that kind of thing. So... Um, especially perhaps Governor Honohan's statements in, in, in the Sunday Business Post where he says that you know we should focus almost entirely on, on making sure that Britain remains part of the single market are, are very thought-provoking because I think we, we've almost got to a stage already with Brexit that we're feeling a little bit defeatist and it's going to be necessary to for the government to, to open up the debate. To I mean, When mm. you think about all the kind of things that we talk about in this country that don't matter a damn and, and we're not talking about Brexit in any, any kind of meaningful way. We're not involving the universities, we're not involving uh, business, we're not involving the chambers of commerce, we're not involving well, we, we've minorities. Hid, we've hidden behind the idea, well, we didn't know what they were going to do, ergo we couldn't come up with a plan. Now we know what the plan is. It's the worst case scenario for Ireland, please. And we, we still don't seem to know what to do. I mean, we don't have a history, a, a good history with protectionism. We can't do it now because we're part of the European Union. So, you know, apart from throwing our hands up and saying we're stumped, what should we be doing? I don't know, get red baseball caps with Ireland first on it or something like that. Uh, make Ireland great again. Well, I, there might I, be a green one doing rounds to United Ireland first, but go on. Well, uh, I, a rather elegant solution just occurred to me when I was sitting outside um, that I think might solve the entire problem, which is uh, Enda Kenny should step down as Taoiseach and become our Brexit czar and uh, allow Leo Radker to take over the running of the country. And, uh, you know, I mean, Andy Kenny is obviously the key person on this, but he is a country to run. He's got other stuff to do. And I think Thomas's point is very good that you need a, you know, I hate this, I hate the phrase, a national conversation, but we need something like that. Bringing in all the stakeholders that have, that have a genuine stake in this from, I mean, we had you know, a Rockless Committee, Finance Committee during the week and you had the Chief Economist from the Department of Finance saying, you know, things like imposition of tar- tariffs uh, on the movement of free trade could cost anything up to 40,000 jobs, Irish jobs over the next decade and could actually slash the number, you know, the percentage of exports between Ireland and Britain by 33%, which is, you know, these are the these are the hard facts that, you know, need to be grasped. And, you know, having somebody, a point person who isn't busy running a country, who can actually call in stakeholders and say okay we do actually need a plan here because you're right we can't hide behind we don't know what they're doing anymore you know so now we know what they're doing but now we, know is it doing. The case? we don't have a very good history of being aggressive in in circumstances like this and and Larry that is the point we we now should be out there swimming with the sharks mm-hmm. i mean we saw a thousand hsbc jobs going to france why yeah. can't they come to dublin or cork or galway 
Absolutely, and I'm actually, I think there's a lot to Lisa's uh, elegant solution to all this. <laughs> and if you're uh, listening, 53106, <laughs> if you have any interest in taking I, it, okay. Lise will carry your bags. I, do, I, I, I think there's something to it. Um, but no, I mean, the, the, the sum total of the numerous opinion pieces that have been written over since Theresa May's speech, uh, from Noel Whelan on Friday on the Irish Times, Michael McDool today in the Business Post, um, Colin McCarthy writing in the Sunday Independent, is to the effect that, they, that Ireland needs to be there, needs to be fighting its corner much harder, and indeed, based on what what I've read in the procedures, there's nothing that says that Ireland can't have a seat around the table. Uh, and to me, that needs to be at the heart of all this because the consequences and the fallout from all this could, will be, inevitably, are going to be dramatic. And in turn, in, speaking of politicians and, and self-interest is something they know well, um, the political fallout here could be dramatic given what happens. So um, the answer now is not to say, okay, we, let's sit on our hands and hope everything will be all right. Maybe behind the scenes we can, you know, our legendary charm we can work on the, the European Union side and get them to take our interests on board. I think we need to be a hell of a lot stronger than that. Yeah, I mean, th- th- there's a meme doing the rounds of, of Ireland, and it's clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Air I am stuck in the middle with EU. <laughs> and, and funny enough as it is, it, it is true. Um, so do we need then, Thomas, as a result of that, to go to Europe and say, right, guys, this is bigger than we had expected to be. We need you to do X, Y, and Z for us. Otherwise, we might have an issue. Yeah, or maybe we don't need to say we need you to do. We need to say this is what should be done. Mm. Um, I think we have a template here. You know, the negotiations around the Good Friday Agreement showed that, that we can be as subtle and as determined and as focused on national interests as anyone else when the chips are down. You know, we, we negotiated with the British, who are very good at this kind of thing, and we got exactly pretty much what we wanted, and we got a, a lasting agreement, <laughs> let's hope. So why can we not devote the same amount of energy to, to the next issue of kind of national importance. I suspect the reason why we perhaps, what, what might hold us back is that our mojo has been knocked by the financial crisis. We're still in a kind of yeah. supplicant, mm. we're like supplicants to the EU. We're kind of, we, we don't feel we can really demand things. Well, we have if, to get way, over the, the crisis are, now. To the bank manager, you're always a little worried about him if he brings you. Yeah, if you walk in with a, an overdraft, it's different to walking in with a big, big surplus. And we, we've got an overdraft, <laughs> 200 billion overdraft. But we've got to put that to one side now or we'll have an even bigger overdraft and really focus on what we what we need. But we know we can do it. I mean, this is not a this is a country that doesn't have distractions. We're not murdering people in Aleppo or anything. We, we, we have very few foreign policy imperatives, so let's make sure that this is the number one imperative and that we focus on it. We're also ignoring the fact that the, the tone has changed in Britain now with, with what Theresa May has come out and said. And, and this, she, she's been anointed as Maggie Thatcher, Mark too, as if Thatcher had come back from the grave in, in a plaid suit. And the, Colin McCarthy makes the point today Uh, And he goes quoting Maggie Thatcher from when they joined the single market and how Thatcher was in love with the single market and the idea of the single market. And to compare is like comparing apples and oranges. Yet the media in Britain and the narrative in Britain, very similar to what has happened in the States, is that it has gone unchallenged and and nobody is willing to stand up and fight for it anymore, which, again, is so worryingly that that, that journalism is in such a sorry state that for fear of offending Middle England, nobody is willing to stand up for what might actually be the truth. Well, I mean, again, this you know, this goes back to the whole question about the the role and responsibility of the media. It was interesting in, in Davos at the conference Davos during the week. Uh, Edelman, the the agency, they release every year a kind of a barometer of trust on various institutions like CEOs, business, media, and so on. And this year, the barometer of trust 
uh, in the media, in all the countries they had polled, it had gone through the floor. It had gone from 48% trust to 43%. And the, in the top three countries with the lowest marking, Ireland is one of those top three countries. The other two being Argentina and um, the, the other one escapes me. But, you know, so you again you have this situation where people are not trusting what they're reading in the media. And then you, you know, you pick up the the Express in England or the Mail in England and you know you have this Thatcheresque, you know cartoons in the front you know festooned with Union flags Union Jacks and Union Jacks and yeah and, and jingoistic and you know that what you're getting inside is a is a, t- is a complete take it's a you know it's, it's not reportage as such it's let's all you know rally around this woman even though really what she presented uh, in her 12 point plan was pretty was pretty fuzzy there was still an awful lot of aspiration and apart from a couple of concrete details there wasn't still an awful lot of like filling in the blanks about how this was all going to happen and transpire. Larry? Yeah, I think Lee's hit on something there uh, and I think part of why the the coverage is what it is is because there's an undeniable rise in an ugly kind of nationalism in the UK. I mean, I think it's palpable uh, and it's strong there and, and it's done, again, down to a lot of factors that, that, that aren't too dissimilar from what's happened um, in the US. So it's, it's something that uh, we're going to have to get to grips with. But I think Thomas's points are, are very, very well made about this having, having to be, you know, bringing it back home, having to be the sole imperative focus. And again, this kind of wait and see attitude just isn't good enough. We need to be there fighting for every, every last thing we can get. The one thing that may affect all of this is how we are governed in this country. And an opinion poll has been published today, Business and Attitudes in the Sunday Times, and it's showing Fianna Gael at 23% and Fianna Fáil at 29%. The only people who are rising are the independents who didn't bother going into government. So that disaffection is here. But, you know, back to your plan, Lise, for for Enda to become our Brexit uh, czar. (laughs) Uh, It it might happen sooner rather than later because a lot of people were commenting last night that we are in push territory. If Fianna Gael are down at 23% in the polls, they'll say they don't care about the polls, but it'll give the likes of Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney mm-hmm. something to think about. Well, it will. I think there's no appetite for a heave after the, their last disastrous outing um, in 2010. I don't think there, he will be pushed. He, I think he's in a window where he could he could do something extraordinary that I, I don't think has ever been done by an Irish Taoiseach and actually quit while he's ahead. I mean, that would be quite an extraordinary thing to happen. Uh, no, but, Bert, to be fair to Bertie, Bertie got out while well, times are reasonably good. I think good. he ran down the plank before he was actually just like pushed over the side of the boat. Now, I was at that press conference and he wasn't a happy <laughs> bunny that day, trust me. Um, I think that, you know, you look at these polls and you see a vote for, you know, a rise in, in support for the independence, for the unaligned independence and so on. I always call that the sort of a pox in all your houses uh, vote of confidence or no confidence. And I think people who are just fed up with all politics will always put their lot in with the, with the non-aligned independence. And, you know, again, that poll did show that Sinn Féin were, you know, had, had, were, on the up, were on the rise again. Uh, unsurprising because obviously they are, I suppose, the true opposition in a way because you have Fianna Fáil doing the, you know, the Schrodinger's cat thing simultaneously in government and not in government. And um, you have, their numbers probably actually, I think, is probably kept a bit depressed by the continuing presence of Gerry Adams in the uh, as leader. I think once he does step aside um, and presumably Mary Lou MacDonald will take over, um, I think you'll probably see them rise again. But an so, election this year, will there be an election this I, year, do you think? Larry's I mean, I, saying no. Please. Yeah, and I have to say, well, my take on this all along is 
if things keep on going on and going on, probably not. And surely because of the election, surely down to inertia and maybe not particularly a, a, any public appetite for it. But I'm convinced there will be an accidental election. That's something we don't know. It could be external forces. It yeah. could be something Trump related or Brexit related or just a small row that will break out yeah. between the independent alliance and Fine Gael and next thing, all bets are off and we're all off to the country. I, I remain unconvinced that we won't have one before the end of the year, Thomas. I have no idea. I'm, I'm very interested in what Lee says. I always think she's a, an astute observer, but <laughs> you know, I, I mean, we, we know the history of that's, our country. That's is, nice praise, isn't it? But you know, the idea that we could that the government could trip at any time surely that's uh, oh, that's in this country, that's true, always you know? true. Um, uh, before we go to break, because we want to talk about sport in a while and the rest of the papers as well, uh, just a balance because we did have one critical tweet of you, Larry. Uh, this is from Ural of Cork. Um, very impressive, Larry Donnelly. Very wise and balanced. So well done. Uh, but could you ask him to say chowder uh, because you're from Boston? <laughs> uh, they want they want it in the Bostonian draw. <laughs> No matter, no matter what I say, people care more about how I say it than but chowder. There you have it. Very good. Uh, stay with us. We'll talk with Richie next. Uh, this is the Sunday Show with Jonathan Healy. We'll come back to our panel for the papers in just a minute because Richie McCormick has popped in to tell us what is on Off the Ball later and what is in the sports pages. And nothing particularly dramatic in the sports pages after just reports of two particularly dramatic soccer matches. Two uh, dramatic soccer matches, a couple of dramatic rugby matches across the weekend as well. And I suppose the rugby touches on something that Paul Kimmage was talking about today as well, which is something he mentioned, I know, on his column with Matt Cooper before where he was uh, talking about flags of convenience and people representing countries that they don't actually come from. Uh, CJ Stander was the case in point in this this one, but there's well, we can drop that now because he's, yeah. he's been man of the match a ridiculous amount four of times I think in a row now after yesterday's win over Racing and you know a guy who's completely ingratiated himself to the culture of Munster a culture of Ireland but so. he's, look he has signed up for Ireland I mean we he can't has, they, no point in denying the man he wants to play for us let the man play yeah and it's nothing that uh, we're not taking advantage of anything that anybody else is you just have to flick through the England squad flick through the France squad flick through the Australia squad and look at the backgrounds of where their players have come from this is a rugby wide thing it's not just an Irish thing Connacht to qualify needs a bit of a prayer don't they not really they they need to if they, if they win they're through uh, if they win with a bonus point uh, which is unlikely but you never know uh, then they're absolutely 100% through but you know you head to Toulouse and you're kind of going on a wing and a prayer um, Toulouse are currently four points behind Connacht so Connacht basically needs to win hope they don't draw and hope against hope that they don't lose and if they do lose that they pick up a bonus point in doing so and don't allow Toulouse to have one now if you're still following that one the game kicks off a little bit later on <laughs> Um, the the upshot of it is that Connacht are actually potential opponents for both Munster and Leinster in the quarterfinals such as the way the seedings have gone so it's actually an interesting one that's ahead this afternoon for Connacht and I suppose for both of those provinces that are already through uh, Look uh, Munster have had one hell of a season yeah. there's no denying it Um could it be the year that they, they reclaim this or at least claim the new version of what went before? There's there's nothing to say they can't. I mean, I don't think anybody in Europe has... I mean, you look at the years that Toulon won it in particular. They were really head and shoulders above everybody else. I don't think we've seen that across Europe. I don't think we've seen a side from the continent or from England or even from Ireland that are head and shoulders above anybody else. I think it's a very open competition this year. And there's nothing to say that neither uh, Leinster or Munster could actually go on and, and win this thing. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic achievement for Munster to, to come from where they were at the start of the year. But it was something that was pointed out in one of the papers last week that the Foley effect isn't everything. I think it was Peter Riley was saying in the Times. The fact that they're actually training in one place now this year 
has made a huge difference to them. They're not flicking between Cork and Limerick. It's not, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Well, kind let's of maybe say it to the Cork lads because they probably don't fancy travelling up as much as their Limerick <laughs> lads who hate travelling down. It's the very fact that everybody is together. There's no kind of second guessing where you're going to be from one week to the next. I mean, that's a huge impact. You, you can see it with football clubs. If, if when they get a decent training complex, then things can suddenly start to come together. And I think that's been true of Munster this year. Um, the matches this afternoon, uh, we had great drama yesterday yeah. with Liverpool losing, of course, Manchester United with that last last, last minute penalty from Rooney. Uh, this afternoon, a uh, free kick from Rooney, mm. if I can pardon. Um, this afternoon, are they, are they going to be as dramatic? Probably not. Do you know what? I think there's a chance that the Chelsea Hull game could be because um, their new manager, Silva at Hull, has actually made a difference in them. They, they won pretty comfortably against Bournemouth, who aren't a bad side uh, last week in the league. Uh, there is something that suggests that the Hull, while you know, they, going to Chelsea might be a bit of a fanciful ass to go and pick up a win but I definitely think they can maybe get a result or at least ask a couple of questions at Chelsea this afternoon especially given the continuing uncertainty I suppose around Diego Costa and then you have Arsenal Burnley as well I mean this is the kind of game that Arsenal should routinely knock out of the park by four or five but oftentimes well, manage to struggle it's, against it's Arsenal, so, yeah. and get over the line just barely if even at all and there's plenty of Irish involvement in both as well when you see uh, Jeff Hendrick and there's a piece about him today with David Sneed in the, in the Mail on Sunday so there's definitely plenty of Irish interest and definitely a lot of interest at the top of the table and I think there could be questions asked of the big sides Chelsea first uh, Arsenal first Arsenal with Nathan first. and Kenny and then Dave and Gary Breen or Chelsea Hull. off the ball from 12 o'clock Richie McCormick thank you very much indeed uh, let's go from the back pages to the front pages Lee's hand is uh, got the Sunday Times in her paw and uh, this story about the guards and, and Templemore I was actually in the car this morning driving up and uh, in my own little headset to myself Guards haven't been in trouble for a while now. This must be easy for them. And then, lo and behold, when I arrive, the front page of the Sunday Times screams something about financial irregularities at Temple Moor. Indeed, I'm sure they'd like to say nothing to see here. Please move on. But uh, yes, John Mooney's uh, story um, on the front page of the Sunday Times looks at it's an internal audit con- conducted by the guards into financial transactions uh, involving the Garda Training College in Temple Moor between 2009 and 2015 which it's, it actually says has uh, exposed serious financial irregularities, including Garda spending on uh, public money on entertainment and gifts and so on. Um, one of the things that, that the report uncovered is that the Guards had rented out land owned by the OPW, the Office of Public Works, to farmers, which netted over 129,000 over four years. And that cash was used to finance Garda societies. So this report was actually given to um, the Department of of, uh, Justice back in September. So what exactly has it's been doing on Francis Fitzgerald's desk since then uh, begs the question. And I'm quite sure that this will cause a bit of a firestorm. Uh, And it's certainly going to put pressure on the Garda Commissioner, Norian Sullivan, who has been firefighting on, you know, several levels with various reports to do with, you know, still in the the ether to do with uh, uh, whistleblowing and so on. And, you know, there's no doubt about it that relations have been chilly, to say the least, between the government and the Guards since their threatened strike, which was taken, you know, so seriously and really forced mm. forced the uh, the hands of the of the of the government to, you know, to release monies. So I yeah, I could I could see this really this could this could cause some serious trouble and will definitely put pressure on the Guard Commissioner. Yeah, and it's the Sunday Times again with another uh, scoop on their front page that uh, Noreen O'Sullivan and Francis Fitzgerald will have to deal with this Absolutely. week. We have to give credit where it's due. Yes. Uh, the bus drivers, um Thomas Malloy Look, you have to have bus drivers on standby in case somebody doesn't turn up. I, I, I get that. But they have a total staff, according to the Sunday Business Post, of 1,300. And 250 of them 
which is what, about 18%, are sitting on their hands, waiting for something to go wrong. That's an extraordinary amount of drivers to have on standby. It certainly seems like an extraordinary number, doesn't it? And I think there's something going on here which is similar to what Lee's described with the guards, which is that when you have strike action, people begin to ask themselves, well, who's right and who's wrong and who's got the stronger case? And you, a light is shined on, on, on the, the people threatening strike, in this case, you know, our transport people. And it, it, it's not going to look good. And you know, There's a very strong piece by Sean Barrett as well about the benefits of competition on, on bus errand routes. And as somebody who often uses bus errand routes and often uses competitors... I would agree with Sean, uh, Sean Barrett completely that, that, that there are very, very good services provided by others. And it really begs the question, why do we have uh, a state system when, when the private sector can do it so well? But, it, it, but the, the, these questions will be asked because of the strike action. And, and it, it's a danger when you, when you call a strike, you really put yourself up on a stage for examination. And the problem here is that there seems to be a lot of fat built into the system in the amount of money they get for driving on a day like today. I think it's 100%. They they get double time for doing it today. They're trying to reduce that to 20%, which is a fairly big drop, Larry. You'll understand where the workers are unhappy. But who's going to step back, look at this in the round and and come up with a solution? Because it's not going to be the unions and it's not going to be bus air and management. Good question. And it desperately needs that because, uh, you know, and I, I, you know, as you say, there's a big issue there. But I mean, I speak as somebody who is totally committed to public transit. I think it's very important to have public transit, but they're in different days. These are different days. I mean, the, the private service providers are extraordinary. I mean, just going up and down between Galway and Dublin is amazing. Between CityLink and GoBus, how easy it is. It's very difficult for Bus Aaron to compete with that. That said, uh, I, you know, again, there needs to be a public transit system, but they're going to have to look and trim some of that fat, or at least as, as it's perceived from the outside. It must be the nightmare scenario though, Lise, that uh, Shane Ross is the minister here, and the unions are looking on going, he probably wasn't the guy we wanted when we were having our strike. <laughs> no, no. Well, I mean, this was a man who once did fulminate about, you know, generally transport and public transport in general. So, I mean, again, Shane Ross finds himself in a headline that he didn't desire, um, which, you know, Shane does like publicity, but it's really, it's been all fairly one way and fairly negative of late. And it's just another another thing he's going to have to deal with. And or not. Or not, or not exactly, uh, whether it's put on the long finger again as well while he concentrates on trying to get the Garda station and step aside reopened. Um, I don't or know. Or judges. Or judges, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I mean, it's just one more headache the government have to deal with. And, you know, pa- uh, Pascal Donoghue is... He's just like the little Dutch boy, you know, really, like he really is. There he is, finger dyke, trying to stop the wall coming down and every single public sector coming at him. Look, thank God he doesn't have Trump-sized hands because there's no (laughs) point in sticking the finger in the dyke if the hands are that small. Lee Lee Sand uh, from the Irish edition of The Times and uh, Thomas Malloy from Trinity College Dublin. Larry Donnelly for the first panel of the war against media that Trump has waged. Thank you very much for joining us.